0: biblical answers for busy people. You ask, we answer, thoughtfully but concisely. This is Hey Real Quick, a podcast of Green Level Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Welcome back to Hey Real Quick. Remember, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. To subscribe and listen to upcoming podcasts, please visit our podcast page or subscribe via Apple Podcasts. As we heard from Pastor David in our last episode, this summer's episodes are dedicated to answering your questions about the Bible. You can submit your questions on our podcast page at greenlevel.com slash real quick. this week's episode Pastor David is going to tackle three of your questions about English translations. First, why are there so many English translations? Second, are some better than others? Third, which one should you choose? Let's turn it over to Pastor David.
1: Thanks, Mason. Welcome back, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Let's take these questions one by one. Before I dive in, however, let me make one quick qualifier. There are entire books devoted to each of these three questions. Thus, though I know I make this disclaimer on almost every single episode, I do want to reiterate once again, my answer is not going to be exhaustive. You guys know me. I could certainly say more. If my answer raises questions, please let me know, and I'll do my best to tackle your follow-up questions in upcoming episodes. With that out of the way, let's dive in. First, why are there so many English translations? Well, let me steer this question in a slightly different direction, as this question actually presupposes an important truth. Namely, the Bible was not written originally in English. The majority of the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. The books that comprise the Old Testament were most likely written and compiled from around 1400 to 430 BC. You will notice I said the majority. There are a few sections in Ezra, Daniel, and Jeremiah that were written in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which is somewhat different from classical Greek. Koine Greek was the common trade language of the Roman Empire. Though there is some debate around the dating of the 27 books of the New Testament, I am persuaded that these books were written between the resurrection of Jesus and a date absolutely no later than A.D. 90. By the way, before we continue, let me now note that I plan to focus a future episode solely on how these books were composed, chosen, and compiled, as well as when and by whom. Translations from these original languages are almost as old as the Bible itself. For example, there is an important Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that dates to around 100 to 200 years before Jesus' birth and which was in use during His life and ministry. The truth is, however, that there is not an official Septuagint translation, and thus some scholars refer to Septuagints in the plural rather than a solitary the Septuagint. After Christ's resurrection, because the church did not have one central location, the New Testament quickly began to be translated into other languages. The three main translations were Latin, Syriac, and Coptic. The most famous of these is probably the late 4th century Latin Vulgate, a translation overseen by Jerome, who was well-versed in both Hebrew and Greek. By the way, just an interesting note, Syriac translations typically translated from the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament, while Coptic translations typically translated from the Greek Septuagint and Greek New Testament other second generation translations quickly arose from these three including Georgian, Armenian, Gothic, and Ethiopic translations. I mention the Latin Vulgate because for many centuries the Latin translation was the Bible for most English-speaking Christians. The Latin Vulgate was the Bible for most English-speaking Christians. The earliest recorded parts of Scripture translated into Old English date to sometime in the 7th and 8th century. The Wessex Gospels, which is the first translation of the Gospels preserved in Old English, is from the 10th century. In the 14th century, John Wycliffe or Wycliffe, sometimes referred to as the Morning Star of the Reformation, began an ambitious project to translate the Bible into the contemporary English of his day known as Middle English. Not Tolkien's Middle Earth, but Middle English. It is likely he completed the New Testament while his associates completed the Old Testament. The project was ambitious because there was no printing press, so this project was done completely by hand. Wycliffe's translation was based largely on the Latin Vulgate. Sadly, church officials and the king quickly judged that reading the Bible in English was not to be allowed, ruling it a capital offense in 1414. Later, in 1526, William Tyndall or Tyndale published the first printed English New Testament, which was translated from Erasmus's 1522 Greek New Testament. Tyndale printed his copies in continental Europe and smuggled them into England. By 1535, the Coverdale Bible, named for Tyndale's assistant, Miles Coverdale, was printed and published. It was the first complete printed English Bible. Tragically, because of this work, Tyndale was strained and burned at the stake just a year later, in 1536. I give you this background because I don't want you to miss the great privilege we share simply to have a copy of the Bible in English. I encourage you to press pause on this podcast and thank God for the sacrifice of John Wycliffe and William Tyndall, as well as their peers and associates who gave their very lives to ensure English speakers could hear and read God's word in their native tongue. Now, for time, I'm going to skip right past the 1560 Geneva Bible, which was the first English Bible with verse divisions, and the King James Version, first authorized in 1611. Regarding the King James Version, we probably need to have a separate episode devoted solely to it. Though not the only translation, it has largely been the predominant one. The next closest was the English Revised Version, or ERV, put together between 1881 and 1885. This translation was completed largely by a committee of scholars from England. Thus, the American scholars chose to keep working and completed the American Standard Version, or ASV, in 1901. In 1952, a major revision of the ASV was published as the Revised Standard Version, or RSV. Well-known translations, such as the New Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the Amplified Bible, and even the New American Standard Bible are all revisions and updates of the ASV. Non-revision translations, which means their translation committee started only with the most well-known, widely used Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, include translations such as the New International Version and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which has recently been updated to be now known as just the Christian Standard Bible. If you look at the front of your English Bible, you will likely see an original published date along with dates for revisions and updates. Many, if not most, English translations are continuously being revised and updated. Okay, so with all that background, let's now address questions 1 and 2 together. Why are there so many translations and are some better than others? Well, it depends. The reason for the updates, more specifically, as well as the number of translations in general, is the sheer number of early Hebrew and Greek manuscripts we have and continue to find, as well as early translations from them. Though, again, this probably deserves its own episode, this is an entire field of study and professional discipline. The truth is, we do not have the first original manuscript of either each Hebrew Old Testament book or Greek New Testament book. We do, however, possess a rich abundance of manuscripts to construct them reasonably and confidently. Again, I know that deserves its own episode. The work of contemporary scholars and translators is similar to Wycliffe's endeavor to translate the Bible into the Middle English of his day. There are two main approaches to do this, and all translations fall somewhere along the spectrum between the two. On one hand, on one side, you have what is known as formal equivalency, which seeks to translate in a literal, word-for-word way. Thus, if the original text said, such as the Irish expression for its raining hard, its throwing cobbler's knives, these translators would seek to preserve this by translating as closely as possible each word. The downside to this approach is that it can often be wooden or hard to read. On the other side, you have what is known as functional equivalency or dynamic equivalency. This approach seeks not so much to translate word for word, but more idiomatic thought for thought. So for example, returning to that uh, Irish expression, it's throwing cobbler's knives, these translators would seek to translate this either, it's raining hard, or another comparable idiomatic expression such as the English, it's raining cats and dogs. The downside of this approach is that it can often lead to theological glossing. No no translation is either completely formal or functional. Each exists somewhere along a spectrum, trying to achieve the right balance of what some scholars call literal accuracy and idiomatic readability. Whether some are better than others depends on where you fall on two items. First, your view of translation. Imagine you are a translator for two friends. I studied Spanish at university, so let's use that. Imagine your Spanish-speaking friend who does not know English needs you to communicate something to your English-speaking friend who does not know Spanish. You are bilingual. You are able to speak both. How do you, how you translate what your Spanish-speaking friend wants to communicate reveals your method of translation, whether formal, functional, or some combination of the two. Second, Whether some are better also depends on your planned usage. This brings us to our final question, which translation should I use? Because the Bible is God's word, I believe it is important to aim as closely as possible to capture the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek words. Thus, for careful study, I recommend translations that are more formal, more word for word. For sitting down and reading large sections, however, I often recommend ones that are more functional, more Thought for thought. When preparing for a sermon, I generally consult several translations across the spectrum, as well as the latest authorized Hebrew and Greek versions. Most English translations are good at achieving their intended end. Again, the differences boil down to, as noted earlier, the approach to translation. Personally, I recommend you choose one that strikes a good balance, though likely leans, even if slightly, to the formal word for word side. Next week, we will post a chart of where each major English version falls on the spectrum on our church website at GreenLevel.com. At the end of the day, I trust the Holy Spirit and echo his words to Augustine. Take up and read. Choose an English translation that you can and will read. In some way, the best translation is the one you read.
0: Thanks, Pastor David. That's all for this week's episode. If you would like to listen to upcoming episodes of this podcast, you can subscribe via our podcast page or Apple Podcasts. If you use Apple Podcasts, we invite you to give us a good rating so more people can find and listen to Hey Real Quick. We'll see you next time.